And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. And then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? If they do these things when judgment is not full, when the tree is not completely dead, what will happen when it is? Two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. The criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus has risen from the dead. He died never to die again, and he rose to live forever, and he lives forever as our intercessor. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, this is what Paul says of Christ. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercessions for us. If you want to understand how the Lord Jesus is interceding for you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how he's praying for you, you can go to John chapter 17, and there you have what is called the Lord Jesus high priestly prayer. And you have this image or this portrait or expression in the last week of Christ's earthly life before he went to the cross of how he is praying for his disciples and his followers and how he is praying for us. And in it also, there's an example of how following him, you might learn to pray for one another. If you want to understand how the Lord Jesus prayed for the lost, how the Lord Jesus interceded for you before the day in which you came to discover him and know him and repent and believe upon him, you can study this passage. If you want to know how the Lord Jesus now is interceding for those you love and you care for who are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, you can look at this passage and understand it. If we want to begin to understand how we follow him and follow his example, interceding for the lost as well, we look at this passage. When we understand the Lord Jesus' ministry as an intercessor, we refer to his office as our priest. And we also remember that the Bible says of the believer and his followers that we are a kingdom of priests which basically means that we are to follow his example. He's leading the way, and we are with him to intercede in the world in which we live. In this passage, we see that for unsaved persons, the Lord Jesus prays that they may come to realize the forgiveness of God. There are occasions in the gospel accounts in which various individuals came to the Lord Jesus seeking healing or looking to him in faith. And on those occasions, the Lord Jesus responded to them by saying, your sins are forgiven you. And you'll remember that whenever he did that, those who were listening on were scandalized by the statement because they understood that only God could forgive sins. But there was the phrase, there was the term, the Lord Jesus declared their forgiveness. In other words, the Lord Jesus, as God himself, absolved them of their guilt. The Lord Jesus, in that declaration, released them from their debt. And yet, in this occasion... As the Lord Jesus is praying, he does not bring a word of absolution. He doesn't bring a word of forgiveness. He doesn't say in this moment, as his hands are being nailed to the cross, your sins are forgiven you. You've been released of your debt. 
Instead, alongside of the sinful activity that's taking place, the Lord Jesus simply prays and intercedes, Father, forgive them, release them of their sins. And his prayer is not an absolution. They're still in their sins. It's weighing against them. They still bear the guilt of their actions. The Lord Jesus is praying that forgiveness from the Father will someday be realized and come to them. That's what he's praying. He's praying the hour and the moment will come when they will know his forgiveness. And so what I want to do this morning is I want you to understand particularly what is behind or what it is that the Lord Jesus is seeking from the Father for that to take place. But before we do that, I want you also to see that in Christ's intercession, seeking for the forgiveness of these sinners, his prayers rise out of a place of power and pity and they rise out of his pain. And so let's look at those first. His intercession rises out of a point and place of his power. When we intercede and we pray for others, we're praying that God would work on the behalf of others to answer their needs. And we go to God believing that God is the one who is the answer for the needs of people. When you pray for your children, it doesn't matter what it is or what the issue is you're praying for. When you pray for a neighbor, when you pray for your spouse, when you pray for your friends, you're going to God because you know God is great and God is powerful and God is the one who can release the answer upon them. And so you're praying and you're positioning your prayer before power, the power of God. As Jesus is going to this place of crucifixion, he's bearing his cross It begins to overwhelm him to such extent that he cannot carry it further. And so the cross is lifted from him and it's laid upon another individual who's conscripted by the Roman soldier, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross behind him as the Lord Jesus makes his way, having been battered and beaten. And as we see all this, we could think of him as an accidental figure of the world's cruelty. But he's carrying this cross to the place of the skull to die and he's going to this place of his own determined will and his own choosing. He's God. And he is in this moment providing the answer to the prayers for our greatest need. He is making his way to the place where he will make the final and ultimate payment for our sins. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this moment in time that the Lord Jesus is going through as he's making his way to the cross. In Isaiah 53 verse 11, the prophet says this, By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And what you can understand from this passage is that the Lord Jesus knew everything that was before him. I don't know if you've ever engaged in some kind of job or some type of activity, and then you thought as you were into it, that activity that you thought would take you half a day, Three days into the project, four days into the project, with the project still looming over your head, you think, if I'd only known, if I'd only known what this would require of me and what this would have cost me, I would have never partaken or taken up this this task. Listen, the Lord Jesus knew the weight that he was lifting. He knew what he was entering into completely and fully when he went to the cross for you. He knew all of the physical agony of the cross. He knew the great spiritual agony of bearing the punishment of your sins and mine. And yet he went with determination to the cross and he went there not as a victim. He gave himself up as an offering. And his cross, from his standpoint, was not an accident. It was an accomplishment. He was accomplishing by the power of God our salvation in that place. It was a point of power. Actually, 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes of the cross of Jesus Christ. And let me read you these words. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24. This is what Paul says. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. If you were for a moment, and this happens to us periodically, to envision all of the scenes of everything that Christ endured, if we were put into our minds the frailty of that human body and the vulnerability of that human life, and the madness of human destruction that was being poured out upon him, innocent and righteous as he was. You see the overwhelming power of death. You see the overwhelming power of destructive forces that are being poured out upon his torn and battered body. It's a pathetic scene. It's a, almost a foolish and ridiculous scene of folly and weakness. But what have you look through it for a moment. And have you look a little closer. And what you see as Christ labors to carry the cross of the Golgotha, what you should understand that you're seeing is not the folly of some seeming weakness. That would be a deceiving note to take with yourself. Instead, what you're seeing, Paul says, is the wisdom of God at play here. You're seeing the power of God being unfolded here. The wisdom and power of God is making the way for our salvation as Jesus carries our sins and bears the cruelty of sin that is laid upon us and laid upon His creation. And it's for this salvation the realization of this salvation that is being accomplished in this very purposeful act, in this accomplishment of the cross, that Jesus intercedes for those ones who right now are participating in crucifying him. In this moment of torment, Jesus is praying from a position of power. He knows that this work will release the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes on him. Now, when you pray for others, when you pray for the salvation of your loved ones and those you care for, you're not engaged in a desperate act. You're not searching for some solution, wondering what might be the answer for their deep need and the trauma or the difficulties or the challenges you can't overcome in their life to communicate truth to them or bring joy to them or peace to them or happiness to them. You're praying from the point of a salvation that has been accomplished in the power of the cross. Always remember... That when we go before God, we go before a God who is sovereign and a God who is in control and a God who has accomplished salvation on behalf of those who have no power to save themselves. You're praying from a point of power. Receive that. Embrace it. Lay hold of that in your prayers. Here's another thing that we see here. His intercession rises out of his pity. There are probably few sights that are more pitiable than that of a condemned man carrying a Roman cross to the point of his and place of his execution. The Lord has been scourged. His body and his face have been battered beyond recognition. He's a pathetic sight. There are the women of Jerusalem that are following after them. We realize just prior to this, it says a great multitude cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And now the multitude is going to the place of crucifixion. And we shouldn't read that these women are believers, that they're the ones who believe and follow the Lord Jesus. Jesus was telling himself, these are the women of Jerusalem. They're not the Galilean women that went and attended to the Lord Jesus' needs throughout his earthly ministry. These are likely the same ones that have been in the midst of the crowd crying out. But as they're going their way and seeing the pathetic case of this condemned criminal, as they consider the miseries that he's undergone and 
that he's past the point of relief, and that no matter how much he has excruciatingly experienced up to that point in time, there is more misery coming, and there is after that the inescapable grave. These women, their humanity is touched. They're provoked by seeing all these things, and they give up a death wail, and they begin to weep, and they begin to cry, and this is somewhat of a tradition, a Jewish tradition, by the way. When there were people that were dying and suffering, there were individuals in the community that felt that somehow they had the gift of mourning. And they would be gathered around and they'd wail and they'd cry. You remember, there's a story of a, a man who came to Jesus. His daughter was dying and his house was full of people wailing. They were administering their gift of wailing and mourning. And when the Lord Jesus said, this one is not dead, but she's only sleeping. We're told that these people who were wailing, a loud wailing, began to laugh. They went from wailing to laughter in a moment. It's because they were just exercising what they thought was their gift of pathos, their ministry to others who were less fortunate than themselves. And so maybe that's what's taking place here. But it's also true that the human heart is not beyond being touched by compassion and pity for the wretchedness that people find themselves in. And so they're weeping. But Jesus turns to them, and as we've said, he's in this moment in a point of power. He's accomplishing our salvation. He's waging and preparing to win a war, and he's not looking for pity. In fact, he looks and turns around, and he has full pity on others. He says, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves tells them. Christ is aware of the great judgment that's coming upon the city of Jerusalem. Soon the Romans will lay siege to that city. Before Passover, the Lord Jesus is crucified, and 40 years later, three days before Passover, the city of Jerusalem is surrounded and laid siege by the Emperor Titus of Rome. And a great famine takes place, and pestilence breaks out through the city, and it becomes so dire that Josephus tells us that the woman of the city even began to devour their own children. Lord Jesus sees this moment coming. He sees the day in which the walls will be torn down around Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and the bodies of Jews will be heaped up upon one another on its mount. And They don't see their own predicament, but he does. And he's filled with pity and compassion for them. The intercession of our Savior sweeps into account our sins, and the great consequences of our sins that we are unaware of. He understands the holy justice and the wrath that God has against sin and that's gathering upon the sinner. He looks over all the people. He sees through their successes. He sees through their privileged positions. He even sees through their pathetic pity upon others the great judgment that's coming upon them. And he weeps. Take your Bibles and turn back to Luke chapter 19. Let me read to you verses 41 through 44. These verses record the Lord Jesus entering in Jerusalem for that final week before he goes to the cross. We call this the moment of his triumphal entry. It tells us what he was doing as he's riding in amidst the crowd and they're throwing palm branches before them and they're crying out, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the king. And they, for a moment, are receiving him as a king, but he knows what's lying ahead of him. Here's what Luke records. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. There was a pathway from judgment that could have been realized by the Jews if they'd only recognized their Messiah had come to them. He knew, though, that they were going to reject him instead, and that judgment was to come upon them. And so he wept. So the Lord Jesus knows the sin in your life, and he knows the cost of that sin, and he knows what you must account for if that sin is not removed by him alone. And he intercedes for the loss, and he intercedes for us that we might come into his forgiveness. The same way our intercessions for others cannot look away from the sins of those that we pray for, nor of the consequences of their sins. We need to be able to absorb the present consequences of their resistance to God's grace and goodness. And we also need to to be able to lay upon our own hearts by the Spirit of God, allow God to lay upon us the pity of the future judgment and consequences that their sin is bringing upon them. This burden weighed upon the Lord Jesus, and it was greater than the weight of His cross. And He wanted not pity for bearing the cross. It was more notable in His mind, their misery and their coming misery, than His own. Here's the last thing to see here. His intercession rises up in an hour of great pain and suffering. Rises up in an hour of great pain and suffering. Now, usually, if you're like me, when you suffer, when you're in great pain, you don't think of anything else but your suffering and your great pain. Your mind fixates on the point of pain or on every point in which there's pain. Where do you hurt? The question is, where do I not hurt? And you're just fixated on it, but... When the Lord Jesus goes to this point and he's experiencing this great pain of a fallen world, the Lord Jesus knew that pain was the result of living in a sinful and fallen world. And in his suffering that he endured at the cross, what the Lord Jesus was doing was he was allowing all of the accumulated pain and sorrow in all of the world, all of its miseries, all the miseries that are brought on by sin, and all of the products that it brings upon the human race, the Lord Jesus is allowing all of that to come upon Him and the cross. Such pain, such extensive pain, is unimaginable to us. And yet as He bore it, He thought about those He bore it for, and He prayed for those that He was suffering for. And he was more mindful of the pain that was before them and of the consequences of their sin that was before them than what he was himself enduring. And so as he died, and you think about this, as he died, he cried out and he prayed for the very ones who were calling out for his crucifixion. As he suffered and as he was in great agony and pain, his mind was turned to those who had framed him with lies. As he was enduring this excruciating suffering, He thought of those who mocked him during his sufferings and those who were nailing him to the cross and those who were shamefully gambling for his garments as he hung naked above them, tormented. He prayed for them in his pain, thinking of their pain. Thinking of them. That's what he did for you and I. He thought of it all. It weighed upon his mind. He's overwhelmed in this excruciating moment. Not to think of himself, but to think of us.
If you think at any point in time that you've committed some sin or you've done something that lays outside God's ability to save you, God's ability to redeem you, think of that moment. Think of that moment and that act and that hour and that time when Christ was enduring the concentrated suffering of the sin of the world and in that moment he cried out to intercede for those who had suffering yet before them not to be realized and that he longed that they would not realize that instead they might experience God's forgiveness. They might be released. That's the word. Father, forgive them means release them from their sins. As he was experiencing the devastation of death and sin, he prayed for others. He prayed for you and I. This is, by the way, what the Lord Jesus did for us, but it's also what the Lord Jesus can do for us in our own sufferings. Our suffering can draw up from us sympathy and a plea for those who we pray for, those that we long to see brought to Christ. When we suffer, when we go through difficulties, instead of just wallowing in our pain and our misery and our pity, the Spirit of God can work with us. It can touch a note within us in which we actually pray for those who are facing a day of greater suffering than that. It can cause us to rejoice in knowing that one day all that pain and all that sorrow and suffering for us will be released. We'll enter into the presence of the Lord and the Bible says we'll run and never grow weary and we'll walk and not faint. Just this, yesterday I spoke to my brother, one of the elders in this church, who's been a good friend of his and a loyal member of his church for many years, is dying of cancer. He's just gone under hospice care. He was planning a month and a half ago what sport he was going to be involved in for the summer season, sporting season. And now he's got this family gathering around him and he's dying. My brother said he went to visit this individual. And the man said, you know, he said, it's the real thing that you struggle with and the real battle here is not battling with pain or battling with cancer. It's it's the struggle to rest in Jesus. Pray that I would rest in Him. The Bible says when we die, for the believer, that we sleep. <laughs> I don't know about you, but as a parent, it was wonderful watching the joy of our children running around, but it was also a joy when they fell asleep in your arms. Right? They were so precious and so wonderful. And then the next morning, they'd leap out of bed all over again. For the person who dies in Jesus, we, we sleep, we rest in Him, and we'll rise up and spring forth in Him one day in eternal glory. That's what's before us. That's our joy. That's our promise. But for others, not so. But for others, not so. The misery and suffering is but beginning. When you're in pain, when you're suffering, see through your pain the promise of hope and rest that God has for you. In that hope, in that promise, pray for those who have yet to receive it and claim it. Pray for those and for their pain that it might be removed from them and they might be able to escape it. That's what our Lord Jesus has done for us so sublimely. Now, that's not possible for us unless the Spirit of God moves us to that place. So let's ask God to give us the spirit of intercession. Deep spirit of prayer for others. Now, with power, in pity... And in pain, I want you to understand what the Lord Jesus was praying for. I want you to see that in his intercession, seeking for forgiveness, he is actually seeking that the conditions for that forgiveness might be realized. 
and those that he's praying for. He's praying that they would see their sin and repent of their sin and realize God's forgiveness. That's actually what the Lord Jesus is praying for. The Lord Jesus offers a defense for them. He says to them, they don't know what they're doing. Well, well, they knew some of the things they were doing. They knew that they had got false witnesses to come and speak against them. At least some of them knew that. They knew that they were crying out for an innocent man who had conducted miracles among them to be crucified while they were calling out for the release of an insurrectionist and a murderer. They knew that. They knew that they were behaving cruelly as they beat him and as they nailed him to the cross. And they knew their mocking and their shaming of them. They knew these things. They knew what they were doing in these things. What they didn't know. What did they not know? What they didn't know was that they were crucifying their Messiah. They didn't know that they were crucifying their Savior, the Son of God. And so Jesus offers a defense for them in his prayer. Father, release them. They don't know what they do. They don't know what they're doing. And he's making a defense for them. But understand something. He's not making an excuse for them. He's not exonerating them. They are still guilty of crucifying the Lord of glory. And that guilt is still upon them. Go to Acts chapter 3. You'll see a sermon that Peter is preaching. Peter, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Spirit that resided upon the Lord Jesus throughout His earthly ministry and rested upon Him as He made His way to the cross and spoke these very words. Peter is speaking through the power of that same Spirit and he's addressing the people of Jerusalem. And he's in the temple. The very place where they had plotted and planned for his crucifixion. And this is what Peter says to them. Read in verse 13 of Acts chapter 3. This is what Peter tells the people gathered around him as he's preaching. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just or righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now these words are very similar to something that Peter had preached just a short time before on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit has been outpoured upon the church, and they went out into the streets of Jerusalem and began to proclaim the good news. And you find that in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. So let me read to you. These are the same type of words. Peter stands up before the crowd that's before them and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth... A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know. Him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Go back to Acts chapter 3. Go back to where we've read so far up to verse 15. Peter is saying to them, You're guilty. You denied him. You delivered him up. You denied the Holy One and the Righteous One. You asked for a murder in his place. You killed the Prince of Life. You crucified him with lawless hands. You're guilty. You're guilty. And he's not just saying this to some of them. He's not just pointing to the religious leaders. He's not just pointing to the men of the Sanhedrin. He's not running his fingers around to point at the different Roman soldiers who may have attended to that moment. He's speaking to the whole multitude. You're all guilty of this. But then see what Peter says in verse 17 of 3. It's what the Lord Jesus prayed. Yet now, brothers, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. 
You were ignorant of who you were killing. And yet you're still guilty. And what was needed for these individuals in this moment is to know what they had done. It was for them to understand the depth of their crime and their sin. What was needed for them in that moment was to understand their part in the cross of Jesus Christ and in His crucifixion and His death so that their ignorance might be removed from them and their guilt would be established in their understanding so that they might run and turn and repent and seek forgiveness and receive it. So you see, when the Lord Jesus is praying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. He's praying that the condition of their ignorance of their sin and of their guilt would not remain but that knowing their sin and knowing what they're doing, they might one day come to confess it and be forgiven. Our intercession for individuals oftentimes will rise to the point of defending them. You know, as you're praying for people, as you're praying that God would work in their life and that they would come to believing faith in Jesus Christ and receive His life and His forgiveness, you begin to process through your mind defenses for them. You say things like, Lord, my grandfather has never really heard the gospel from anyone his whole life. He's never been in a place where it's ever been articulated to him in any way. Or you say, Lord, she has been surrounded her life by hypocrites who have been a false advertisement for who you are, and she has no idea of who you are because of the people that have surrounded her, these hypocritical people. Or you say, Lord, listen, my children or my grandchildren are being swept away in a generation that is being swept away in godlessness. It's a godless age and a godless time, and you're making a defense for them in a sense. You're saying these are the reasons why they're in this state or they're in this situation, but really as you make your defense, you're actually praying something positive for them. You're saying, God, send somebody to my grandfather so they might hear the gospel clearly and understand it. You're saying, God, put before this dear woman, my friend, put before her individuals who are pure examples of your presence and your life so that she might see the truth of Jesus Christ in the lives of others. You're praying, God, intervene in this godless age. Intervene before this generation and make yourself known to them. You're praying a defense for them, but you're also praying that God would do something to remedy the situation. That's exactly what the Lord Jesus is praying for. By the way, Peter brings a message of light to these people. Peter is the one who is showing them what their sin really was. That's a remedy. They didn't know what they were doing. He's showing them what they've done so they can repent. And then Peter invites them into repentance. So back to Acts chapter 3, verses 17. Verse 17, we read it. Basically, the prayer that Jesus is praying is to send somebody to them to help them understand the extent of their sin and its gravity. Send somebody to tell them these things so that they can recognize it and see it and their ignorance will be removed and they would call it to you for repentance. That's what we all need, by the way. Anyone who ever comes to the Lord Jesus comes to the Lord Jesus in a moment when they realize that they're not just little sinners. They've not just had some white things. They've not just been fouled up by other people. It's at a moment of time when they see their own sin and their own life, the depth of their sinfulness becomes realized by them and they can no longer make excuses for it and they can no longer project it on the way they were raised or project it upon their society or project it upon bad breaks. They see their own sin. God graciously reveals to them so that they in that moment might see their Savior, the only one who can save them. They don't say, you know, if I could just rise over this situation, if I could just kind of get past this point, if I could just do a little better the next time. No, they say, there's no way out from this. Let's find a Savior who can redeem me and rescue me because it's me. It's my sin. It's me. 
That's what God does. And that's what the Lord Jesus is praying for here. He's praying that someone will go to them and tell them of their sin and call them into repentance. And the answer to his prayer is Peter. And it's the early church. And it's the early church in Jerusalem. That's exactly what they do. What does Peter say to them after telling them, you're the ones who have done this and acknowledging their guilt? The next thing he does is he acknowledges their ignorance. Verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But you did it. You did it anyhow. And then he says this, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore. You did it still. Repent, therefore, and be turned or converted that your sins would be blotted out. Removed so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jesus' intercession on the cross is in part answered by the preaching of Peter and the early disciples of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. On that first day of preaching, revealing the sin of those in Jerusalem that they had committed, we're told that the crowd before them was cut to the heart and they cried out, Men and brethren, what must we do? And they're told to repent, to turn in faith to the outpoured life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were baptized in His name. And we're told that 3,000 on that day believed on Him. And as a result of the proclaiming of the church in Jerusalem, what we come to understand is that God delays His judgment on the city of Jerusalem for 40 years. And during that 40 years, many within that city will come to see their sin and see their Savior and repent and believe upon Him and be forgiven by the Father, just as the Lord Jesus prayed. And He prayed for us too. He prayed for us too, and that's why we're here. And so we pray to an end. We pray for forgiveness to be realized. And we pray that the conditions for that forgiveness to be brought about, that people would be aware of the profundity of their own sin and its depth, And the fact that it is not answerable in anything that they can do, and there's no answer for it apart from the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus has suffered in their place. We pray for them. And we also pray for the church. We pray that God would raise up an interceding church who knows His power of salvation, who pities those who are in their sin still, who before the advancing judgment of God, prays, not getting lost in their own pain and suffering, but prays that those who are facing the endless pain would be delivered from it. We pray for a people who would be ready then to be voices, pulling back the ignorance people have of their own sin and their own accountability before, to reveal to them its guilt, and to tell them the place where that guilt has been answered and paid for, and to point them to the person who washes away every sin. That's what we pray for. We pray, God, let me pray in this way. God, let me live a life before you that demonstrates this to others. God, raise up a church that will continue to walk alongside of you in your intercessions because, Jesus, you ever live to make intercession. Even still, you're praying for these. Let's pray for them too. Let's bow our heads. This is how you prayed for us. This is how, dear Savior, you moved others to pray for us. Mothers and fathers, beside their bed, 
in the corner of a room bowed before you. Oh God, show my son his need of you. Show him his sin. Oh God, may he turn to you in desperation to find the depth of your forgiveness and in it find a love so deep, so profound that it would hold him the rest of his life in your presence. Let him know the lightness of every sin removed. God, thank you for prayers such as that. How Christ-like, how Christ-full, how full of your spirit. Lord, these are the prayers we pray for those we long to see one to the Savior. Hear us now. Our prayers are not acts of desperation. We know what you've accomplished and we know what you've done. and We know how you work. You are sovereign. You're in control. Salvation is available for them. There is an answer for every need in their life. Oh God, that they might know it and realize it and find you. And thank you, O oh God, that you offer even now in this very moment, in this very hour, that answer to all who would turn to you and believe in you. We praise you for that. We take great comfort and confidence in that. May you be glorified, Jesus, precious Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name.